0: with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we do worship you this morning because you are our creator and that we depend on you for everything, not just the physical um, needs that we have, but we depend on your wisdom to live in this world. And we thank you that you have revealed that wisdom to us in your word and we ask God that you would give us submissive minds and hearts as we study your word, that we would conform our thinking. Uh, to the pattern of your word. And we ask that you would give us the power uh, to live it out. We depend on you not only for your wisdom, but for your grace to live before you. So we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So please open to Genesis chapter 1. Please forgive me, I've got a little bit of something in my throat. So if I sound like a frog... So the, these three weeks, we're talking about the image of God in man and what that means. Today, the topic is male and female in the image of God. Um, there's, one of the, there's, a few, there's a couple of blogs that I follow on the Internet, there's, and one of them is written by a Christian guy who talks a lot about marriage and family and that sort of thing. And one day, the discussion was about the divorce rate in the church, and he quoted a, a real prominent Christian leader. I won't give you the name, but you would recognize it. And he was quoting a new statistic out there that had modified the divorce numbers to try and account for the fact that there's unbelievers in the church and that sort of thing. And he said, among believers in the church, the divorce rate was something like, I think it was 40%, 38%, something like that. And this leader was saying what a triumph that is, because that's a little bit lower than the culture. And the point that the blog writer was making was that that's not a triumph, that's a tragedy. I mean, that's... um, it's a shame and so his proposed solution was he created a little sign you know when you go to a a workplace that's a dangerous place they have a sign on the wall that says so many days since our last accident and the last record was so so he created a sign that we could put up at a church it said this church has glorified God for x number of days without a frivolous divorce our previous record was (laughs) x number of days um of course it's a silly joke I tried to find the picture to put on your sheet but I couldn't um but that gets the the idea is that there is a sense in which God's glory is tied intentionally to the male female relationship. God has done that intentionally when he created us in the image of God as male and female. He has set his glory on male and female relationships. And it is it makes the gospel stink to the world when we don't get it right. So today we're going to look at we're going to look at what the scripture says on the male and female relationship and how that mirrors the character and nature of God uh, towards getting it right. Now, I don't think I'm an expert on this. I've only been married for five years. So I'm talking in theory, but I'm not practically an expert on this. Uh, So let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. And before we read the text, let's remind ourselves on your sheet there of the the working definition that we have of God's image. God's image in man is God's gracious declaration that the human race would be the clearest mirror of God's glory in all creation. So in other words, when God said, let us make man our image, he was saying, I want to create a race of people where my glory will be seen more clearly than in anything else I've made. So let's look at the text and see how male and female can reflect the image of God. Uh, Genesis 1, and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the first thing I want to Want to ask you is in verse 26, look at that. When God says, Let us make man, who is he talking to? He's talking with probably the other members of the Trinity. You know, some people would say the angels or something, I don't know who else, would be there. But I think the best the best solution there is to think that he's speaking among the members of the Trinity. When God says, Let us make man in our image, he's the Father and the Son and the Spirit are considering together how they can focus their the glory that is exists in the Trinity how they can focus that in creation and so there is definite there is a Trinitarian aspect to the image of God that we haven't explored yet we didn't talk about that at all last week um, but what I would like to su- suggest to you is that it's not in our the trinit the, the mirror of the Trinity in creation is not inside an individual human last week we talked about how Augustine thought that the mind the will and the memory kind of work together to, tr- to create a Trinity inside us. And I don't think that's, he was getting that from Aristotle, not from the Bible. So I don't think that's where we should see it. I think we should see it in male-female relationships. Um, So before we get to describing how male and female relationships mirror the Trinity, let's remind ourselves what the doctrine of the Trinity is. There are two aspects of it. What are they? Okay, God is one in essence and three in persons. So there is unity and distinction. There is a unity of essence. There is only one God and there is only one divine nature. And yet that nature finds its expression somehow. It's kind of a mystery. No one can understand it. In three distinct persons. Um, And these are just not modes of being but there are three distinct persons. Um, And we find that when the biblical um, standard for male-female relationships reflects that structure. There is equality. In personhood, equality before God, yet there is distinction in roles. Is there a distinction in roles among the members of the Trinity in the Bible? Do they do different things? What is the Father's job? I can't hear. He's the head. He, he makes the plans. He sets the direction, you could say. Uh, what is the Son's job? To do the will of the Father, To accomplish, to accomplish everything the Father has told him to do. What is the Spirit's job? To bring glory to the Son, in particular. His job is to focus attention on Jesus Christ. Um, So there is, while they're all one and the same, there is is an authority structure within the Trinity. Jesus doesn't do, when he came on the earth, and the Gospel of John says this over and over again, he didn't say anything he wanted to say. He spoke only what his Father told him to say. The Bible makes that point. Jesus makes that point in the Gospel of John over and over again. So the distinction of roles is not just a distinction of roles. It's based on a distinction in authority. The Father has authority that he delegates to the Son. He has, uh, the, the New Testament says that he has committed all rule to the Son. That's a delegated authority that the Father has given to him. And it is the Father and Son together that send the Spirit into the world to bring glory to Jesus. So there is a, the distinction in roles indicate a distinction in authority. Within the Trinity. But that distinction in authority is not a value judgment. It's not that these people, it's not that the Father is worth more than the Spirit, or that the Son is worth less than the Father. The distinction in authority and distinction in role is has nothing to do with the distinction in worth or value. And that is, and that parallels and mimics the biblical teaching on how men and women should relate to each other. So let's look at it. Equality before God. Men and women are created to be equal before God. And your first point there is that they are equal in creation. You can see that in verse 26 that we just read. Verse 26 and 27. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then verse 27, when he actually created them, he created them male and female. The very clear teaching of this passage is that both men and women are equally created in the image of God. You can't interpret that any other way. So there is an equality before in their standing before God that is hardwired into us. It's the very nature of who we are. Um, now when, the, when, he, when he says male and female, he created them, it means three things. It means that men individually are created in the image of God. It means that women individually are created in the image of God. And it means that the relationship of the two is created in the image of God. So that implies that you, you don't have to be married to be the image of God. You don't have to be married to live it out. Um, Men on their own are the image of God, and women on their own are the image of God. So even if you are not yet married, even if you never get married, you are still the image of God, and you can still glorify him in everything you do. But there is also a teaching in this text that the male and female relationship somehow reflects the Trinity. When God says, let us make man our image, what he does is he creates two that have a correspondence to each other. So there is something about that correspondence that reflects the nature of the Trinity. So we are equal in creation. Um, We are equal in punishment. Turn over to Genesis 3, 15. And you know what I'm getting at here. I'm sorry, verse 16 and 17 is what I should have said. This is after the fall, of course. And so in verse 16, God says to the woman, to the woman, he says, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. In verse 17, says, then to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. What is God doing there? He is, he is. He's approaching both of them concerning their own individual sin. He says to the woman, you sinned, and so here's your punishment. And he says to the man, here's your sin, here's your punishment. There is an equality there in their standing before God that that both are individually accountable to God for what they do in that relationship. Um, So there is an equality in punishment. And that, that equality is an outgrowing of the image of God. It is precisely because God created us in their image that we belong to him. And so whatever we do has to be done in correct relationship to him. And if we don't, there is a responsibility that's put on us for that. So, and that's equal between men and women. And we are also equal in redemption. You can turn over to Galatians 3 for that. And that's the good news. Galatians 3, 27, and 28, for all of you were baptized into Christ, you have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all all one in Christ Jesus. Now, is he saying there that we should all be androgynous? Is that what that means? Of course not. Um, He's saying that when it comes to salvation, men and women are equal, just like Jews and Gentiles are equal, Um, just like slave and free are equal, and rich and poor are equal. The gospel is for everybody, and the reason it's for everybody is because everyone is made in the image of God, and everyone is accountable to God, and that means everyone can be saved. Um, Now, that seems pretty basic, but there are actually evangelical churches that implicitly deny that. Um, I have heard preachers say from the pulpit, and in personal counsel, that if there's a problem in the marriage, it is always the man's fault. Now, it, it, no, that's not true. How could it be? That, when there's a problem in the marriage, it's always shared somehow between the two of them. There's never, there's almost never a time in a marriage where it's always one person's fault and never the other person's fault. But I've heard folks, I've heard, conservative evangelicals that would um, basically teach what I'm teaching now, say to men, if there's a problem in the marriage, it is your fault. Well, is there a kernel of truth there? Yes, the, the man is responsible. We'll get there in a minute when we talk about distinction and roles, that the man is responsible for the direction of the family. But the man is not responsible for a woman's sin. God doesn't ever say that. You know, one example of that, if you want to see it worked out, would be the movie Fireproof. Um, in that movie, both of them sin pretty clearly, but all of the guilt is laid on one party. It's a very one-sided presentation. Um, I know some, maybe some of you have seen that. I don't know if you've noticed that, but it's it's there. Um, so this, while while we all would agree in terms of theory that men and women are equal before God, not all evangelicals would practice it. Um, So, we are equal before God. That's the first aspect of how men and women kind of mirror the Trinity. Because in the Trinity, all of the members of the Trinity are equal in their standing. And yet, while we are equal before God, there is a distinction in role. And to see that, we're going to come back to Genesis in a second. We're going to look through Genesis. But I want you to see 1 Corinthians 11.3 3 because it's, um, it's an interesting verse. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So who's the head of Christ? God the Father. So he's he's thinking in terms of the Trinitarian relationship, the authority structure and the role structure that exists in the Trinity, and he compares that to men and women. So he's, he, is, he is explicitly saying that the male-female relationship mirrors the inner-Trinitarian relationship. You can see that. And how do they mirror that? By the male being the head of the woman, just like God the Father is the head of Christ. And so that authority structure that exists in the Trinity ought to be reflected in marriage. And it is God's design and intention for marriage. So now let's go back to Genesis and Genesis and see if there's any evidence in the text of Genesis that might support that. And we're going to find six distinct lines of evidence that that that's actually here in the creation account. So look at chapter 2 and verse 7. Adam was created first. Before Eve, it says, then God formed from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and, he be, and the man became a living being. And it's only later that God puts him to sleep and Adam is created. Now, that by itself wouldn't mean much to us in our culture. So what? He was made first. Whoop-de-doo. Um, but the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 2.13 correlates that to authority structure. Might as well turn there. We're flipping around a lot today. But that's okay. And we'll read verses 12 and 13. 1 Timothy 2 12 and 13. But I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet because. It was Adam who was formed first and then Eve. Um, so the Apostle Paul, writing under the authority of the Holy Spirit, says that the fact that Adam was created first implies something about the relationship of the two, and then there's the authority structure there that's, that's implied by Adam being created first. Um, although it, seems, it may seem counterintuitive to us or not all that significant to us, the Holy Spirit thinks it is. So it means something. Okay, so point number two there. Eve was created to be Adam's helper. In 2.18, I'll just read it. You don't have to spend time flipping there. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Um, so Eve was, Eve was created to support Adam in his role. But Adam was not created to support Eve in her role. So there is there is while there's equality among the persons, there's not equality in the roles. The one does the one thing, the other does the other thing. And that inequality is is an evidence of an authority structure there. Eve is meant to be his helper. Uh, But it's interesting to observe when that takes place. Um, It's interesting to note that Adam has already been acting as the image of God. Um, After God made Adam and formed him and put him in the garden, he brought all the animals there and had them parade in front of him and Adam named them all. And when Adam is naming them all, that's an expression of his authority over the animals. That's him, that's him living out the image of God and subduing the creation that God told him to do. But um, He starts doing that before Adam come, before Eve even comes along. So he's acting as the image of God on his own, and he's living out God's demands and directives, but that's not good enough. He can't do everything that God wants him to do. How can he fill the earth and subdue it? He's already subduing it sin somewhat, but how can he fill the earth on his own? be kind of hard so God gives him a helper to do that and so the the fact that Eve was created to be his helper to fill the earth implies something about what her role is in that family her role is to um, be a wife and a mother to assist in the raising of children uh, because that's the that's the thing that Adam couldn't do on his own that he needed a helper to do in particular of course there's other ways that a wife can be a help to her husband but that's one the first point there the, the third point I'm sorry on your notes Adam named Eve. In fact, it's so significant because the text mentions it twice. It mentions it both before the fall and after the fall. Before the fall, um, you know, God puts him to sleep and does surgery on his ribs and makes Eve out of that raw material and brings him to him. and, And Adam's response is, this is woman, for she was taken out of man. So he names her in a generic sense before the fall ever happens, just like he named the animals. So that, the fact that he named her implies authority. Um, and then after the fall, significantly after the fall, it's when he says her name will be Eve because she's the mother of all the living. So the authority structure that's there in him naming her is not dependent on the fall. It's not something that comes about because we're sinful. It's something that the text mentions in both places. Um, so it's genuinely there in God's created order. Another line of evidence. God named the human race... Man, you can see that in Genesis five two, which I'll read for you. He created them, male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. Um, God chose to human. God chose to name the human race Adam. That's the Hebrew word. The same word that we get Adam's name from is the name that God appointed for the the whole race. Um, that means more, so he didn't name it Eve, is the implication. God didn't name the human race Eve. He could have if he wanted to, um, but he didn't. He named the human race A- man. And so what that means is that Adam, the, the individual Adam, that first human being that we call Adam, was the representative and the spiritual head of the entire human race, which would include his wife. Um, so, so Adam is the head of the whole human race. The next line of evidence, God spoke to Adam first after the fall. So after they sin and they make their own fig leaves and they jump in the bushes because they hear God coming. um, It's interesting what God says. He comes, sorry, that should be um, 3.9. I I wrote down the wrong reference there, didn't I? 3.9, the Lord God called to the man. It, didn't, it doesn't say he called to them, the couple. It says he called to the man, and he said, "Where are you?" And that "you" in Hebrew is singular; it's not plural. He's calling the man out. He said, "Y'all, the two of you have sinned, but where are you, Adam?" He's implying that it very strongly implies that God thinks that the responsibility falls primarily on the man for the sin of the pair. Um, that's an indication that there is a spiritual leadership there that Adam is responsible before God for the direction of his family. Now we've already noticed how God punishes them individually um, so he is so they are both responsible for their individual actions but Adam's individual responsibility was for the direction of the home and the family. That's why God comes to him he says, "Where are you Adam?"." Um, and so that implies the nature of the – that implies something – that tells us something about the nature of these roles. Um, there is an authority structure in marriage, but the, that authority is meant to be used for spiritual leadership. It's meant to be used, as we'll, as we'll see when we get to Ephesians 5 in just a moment, it's meant to be used for the sanctification of the wife. It's not meant to be used for a man to just do whatever he wants and watch TV and have a cold beer while the wife does all the work. I mean, that's, that's not how you use your authority. Your authority, his authority was meant to sanctify his wife and preserve her and keep her from temptation. And that's what he failed in doing. The last line of evidence there, that there is a distinction in roles, and that is that the curse brought no new roles, but only increasing difficulty in existing roles. You can see that in verses 3, 15 through 17 that we've already read, so I won't read it again. But what he says to the woman... He says, I'm going to greatly increase your pain in childbearing. That's nothing new. She was already going to be the mother of all the living. That's why he created a woman, so she could be the mother of all the living. So that's nothing new. She's still supposed to be a wife and a mother, but it's going to be extremely hard. And to the man, the text has already mentioned that God put Adam in the the garden to serve the ground. And yet it says to the Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. It's going to produce thorns and thistles and by the sweat of your face. So he still has the same role. He's still supposed to serve the ground, but now it's going to be extremely more difficult. So the roles are not different. It's just more difficult. But notice how the the male-female relationship is described in 3.16. Look at it. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, the other other things there are not new, just more difficult. I think that we should interpret this statement the same way. When God says, your husband's going to rule over you, that's not something new. It's something more difficult. The word for rule implies harshness or severity um, to it. And the word for desire is a word that means desire to dominate. So the woman, so the, now, now that the authority structure in marriage still remains, but now it's more difficult because the wife has an inherent desire somehow to control her husband. And the wife has a temptation, and the husband, sorry, as a temptation to dominate his wife and put her in her place. And so the roles are the same, but now there is conflict. And all of us who are married know understand by our own experience what that feels like, what that looks like, what that is like. Um, But that's not a result of the fall. What's a result of the fall is that that role is now difficult. It's now a struggle. Not that the authority wasn't God-ordained. And I'll leave you... The a quote from a guy named Gilbert Bilzekian. That's a very strange name. Um, let me tell you who he is before I read the quote. Gilbert Bilzekian is one of the theologians uh, behind the seeker-sensitive movement. You know, the, these churches that are seeker-sensitive, they get really big by appealing to um, people's felt needs, basically. He is one of the primary theologians that started that whole movement. He's the guy that mentored, um, what's his name? The guy at Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago. Bill Hybels, yeah. He, this was Bill Hybels' mentor. And he wrote a book about sex roles. And here's what he said. Because it resulted from the fall, the rule of Adam over Eve is viewed as satanic in origin, no less than death itself. That's pretty strong language. What is he saying there? He's saying that if a husband acts in authority in his home, he's the devil. And he's trying to kill his wife. I mean... You could take it that way. Um, but what is that saying? What does he mean? He's saying that for a husband to have authority in his home and for the wife to submit to that is inherently evil. It's evil for a man to have an opinion about what should go on in his home. That's what he's saying. And he's and he is one of the theologians that drove a whole movement in the church, in supposedly conservative and evangelical churches. Um, I would like to suggest to you that that's not just false teaching. That's blasphemy because he's attributing what came from God in creation to the devil. He's saying what God said is actually from the devil. I would call that blasphemy, not just false teaching. But but the fact is, that's where our culture is. Everyone who has been raised in our culture in the last 40 or 50 years grows up with the idea that male authority is inherently oppressive. And when we come to marriage, that's the kind of thinking that both young men and young women have. Young women have this idea, and they they tend to fight against it, but men are often afraid to express authority because they've been told all their life that it's wrong. Um, And so women women are frustrated often because their husbands don't know how to lead, but they don't know how to lead because they've never been taught how. And so we need the teaching of the Word of God to correct correct us and correct the situation. But the point I'm trying to make is that this equality before God and this distinction in roles is reflective of the structure of the Trinity itself. This is the way God relates to the Trinity. And in order to have a mirror and a picture of that relationship for the world to see, he created a man and woman. So marriage is not just, um, it's not just, God did not create marriage just for the happiness of people and for filling the earth with, with little human beings running around all over the place. He created it to glorify himself and to show the world what he was like. That's why it's so critical that we get this right. Um, not only because it makes marriages happier, but because it glorifies God and brings honor to his name. And it shows people what he's like. So the, God created male, the image of God in the male and female is a mirror of the Trinity. It's also a mirror of Christ in the church. Um, Let's turn over to Ephesians 5. We won't spend quite as much time on this passage as the other. Ephesians 5, we'll read 22 through 33. Does wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord? For the, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body. For this reason, the man should leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Um, so you can see in this passage that that distinction in roles is still present. Um, in fact, it's present. To, so he sets the standard so high that it's impossible to fulfill. He says, wives, be subject to your husbands in everything. Um, that's amazing. I mean, that's an amazingly high standard. Everything, really? That's pretty hard. Um, But look, he he spends a whole lot more time on the husbands and what their job is. Um, Love your wives just like Jesus gave himself up for the church. How in the world am I going to do that? How can I love my wife? with the same degree of love that Jesus showed for me on the cross. Sorry, because I don't know how to do that. Um, But you can see that distinction of roles is present. Um, And you can see how the husband is to use his authority. It says right there, he's to sanctify her and wash her. sorry, so on your notes, the blanks there, let's try and fill them in. Uh, The wife is compared to the church and the husband to Christ. Accordingly, the wife is to obey in everything and the husband is to make whatever sacrifices are necessary to lead her spiritually and love her intimately. Um, So let's look at these verses and you guys tell me how is love of a husband defined in this passage. He gives several descriptions of it. Why don't you look through there and tell me, How a husband loves his wife, practically. What does that mean? Okay. What else? Okay. Okay. Well, that would be a practical application, yeah. So what... How is his love described? What does he do uh, in this text? He sanctifies her. And there's a comparison there being made between the body of Christ, which is the church, and the head of, the Christ, and the head of that body, which is Jesus. Um, what did Jesus do when he died on the cross? He took a rebellious bunch of sinners who hated him, and he drew them in to be his own body. The, the, the fundamental relationship there is one of union with Christ. God has taken those who are his enemies and he's made them literally one with himself through the baptism of the Spirit. And this passage is saying that men ought to think of their wives in that same way. That he's supposed to love her as he loves his own body. In other words, it, he's supposed to think of her as his own body. He's supposed to think of her thoughts with the same respect he would give his own thoughts. Her own desires and emotions, the way he would respect his own. Her needs, the way he would respect his own needs. He's supposed to think of her as his body, because Jesus thinks of the church as his body. Um, that, sometimes this, this passage is described in terms of servant leadership. Um, I, don't, I don't know that the text is driving at the service aspect of it as much as it is the intimacy aspect of it. The way a husband loves his wife in this passage, yeah, he serves her. But in this passage, he's drawing her into his world and making her one with him. Uh, That one flesh relationship um, encompasses every aspect of our beings. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, all of that. And this passage is saying it's really the husband's job. The husband's responsibility before God to drive that intimacy and bring it in. Um, That's not something that's natural to men. I don't know if you've noticed that. (laughs) But that's the standard that's put out there, is that is that the love in this passage is primarily driving at intimacy uh, in every area of, of, of the relationship. Um, but that's not all he says about marriage. He's, he's, he's not just trying to get those roles right and define them correctly for us. He's indicating that there's a typology here. There is, a, there is in marriage, in that male-female relationship, when we get it right, it's actually a picture of something much larger than these two people. It's a picture of Christ in the church. So that typology there on your notes. The one flesh relationship which was established at creation. It was established at creation to foreshadow our eternal relationship with Christ. In other words, our our inherent longing for marriage is in reality a longing for God. Therefore, marriage is meant to draw our hearts out of ourselves toward Christ. That's what he says there at the end of the chapter when he says, he quotes Genesis in verse 31. For this reason, a a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become, look at that, again, one flesh. And he says in verse 32, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking to you, this mystery is great. I'm not talking about men and women. I'm talking about Christ and the church. Um, Haven't you ever noticed how how quickly little kids start thinking in terms of marriage. You know, I have a five-year-old daughter, and she's always pretending things like that. She, she loves any movie we see, she wants to skip to the wedding scene. <laughs> you know, and little boys do something similar. They don't do it with quite the um, gusto that little girls do. But little boys, even when they're a little bitty, are pretending how they can rescue the damsel and, and that sort of thing. And they do it, and both, both boys and girls do this long before puberty, don't they? So it's not really a sexual thing in their mind, but there is kind of an inherent longing for a man, male-female relationship. And it's, it's there in us from the very beginning. Um, and those of you who have kids have seen it, both in your boys and girls. Um, that, that inherent longing is there because God created us in his image as male and female. The reason we're wired that way is because we're made in the image of God. And the image of God entails the relationship of men and women together. And so that inherent longing in this passage, what he's saying is that inherent longing for us is not a desire to be married. It's a desire to be one with Christ in the new heavens and new earth. That's why this mystery, that blows your mind. That's why this mystery is so great. is because that, that longing that we have to be, the longing that you have to be intimate with your spouse and to put aside the conflict and finally grow together That's not really a longing for a harmonious home. It's a longing for the wedding supper of the Lamb. Because that kind of intimacy that we can taste a little bit of here is going to be magnified in eternity when we see Christ face to face. And so that's that's the real point of marriage. Marriage is not about creating happy homes. It's about advancing the gospel. Marriage is not about you being happy and personally fulfilled. It's about reflecting the nature and the glory of God and reflecting the truth of the gospel. So on your applications there, um, the primary application I would like to drive at today is that marriage is not about you. There's something bigger going on? And what's bigger is the, the, the glory of the gospel and the glory of God. have a couple more minutes. There there is one more passage I would like us to look at which I forgot to put on our notes. Turn back to Romans 1. Since we have a a few more minutes. Uh, I intended to put this passage on our notes, but I typed these notes late at night and I forgot it. Now, in Romans one, uh, there isn't. With the theme of our lesson today is the connection between male and female relationships and the image of God, and how the image of God is, is seen in that relationship. Romans one kind of reverses it and it shows you what happens when we get it backwards. Um, starting in verse eighteen, Romans one eighteen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. Note there, there are two themes. The image of God is is God's glory. They're both there in verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and of four-footed animals, and of crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And skip down to verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. I'm sorry, verse 26. I skipped past it. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degraded passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. So what happened there in verse 23? Um, This passage is saying that God has made his nature clear to everyone. Everyone in the world, even atheists who deny God exists, they know in their heart that God does. So everyone knows that God exists, they know his divine nature, and they know his eternal power. Because everyone can see that. But people didn't honor that, they did not give thanks to God, they did not worship him, what did they do? They switched it upside down. They said that God, that man is not made in the image of God. They said God is made in the image of man. Did you see that in the text in verse 23? How they inverted the image of God? They said we're not going to give thanks to God because he's going to be made in our image. We're not made in the image of God anymore. He's going to be made in our image and in the image of creepy crawly things. So what they've done is they've taken the image of God, the created order that God had, and they've flipped it upside down. So what did God do? He took the male-female relationship. And he cursed them by flipping it upside down. It says that that's why God gave some people to exchange the natural use of a woman for the unnatural use of a man. So there's this inversion of the image of God. They didn't want to honor God. They flipped the image of God upside down. So God took their male-female relationships and he broke it. And he twisted them all and flipped them upside down. So there, there is a correspondence there in that judgment which is just. They did not honor the image of God. And so God does not honor the male and female relationships in them. So you can see that in God's eyes the two are connected. The image of God and the male and female relationship are connected in this passage, very clearly in the mind of God, to such a degree that those who don't honor him, they have perverted male-female relationships. Um, so you can, there's another, that's another clear passage that would describe for us that the, um, the male-female relationship itself is somehow a reflection of the image of God. And God intends it to be ordered correctly so that he can receive honor and glory. Um, so I'm, I've been talking a lot. Now it's your turn. What applications are you guys making? As. How would you all apply this lesson or this teaching from the Scripture to your own lives? I realize it's kind of a personal question to ask, so maybe we're hesitant to say so. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's a good application. And women crave it. That's very good. What else? Okay, Okay. well, if that's all that you guys have to say, let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we confess to you that your word humbles us because you have set before us a standard that is impossible for us to uh, attain. And so, God, we beseech you this morning for your grace. Save our marriages and save us. And give us the grace and the power that we need to correctly reflect your nature in this world. So when the world looks at us, they would not see a reflection of themselves, but they would see a reflection of you. And we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.